Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Good evening and dobrovecher to our Ukrainian friends. Thank you so much for coming tonight. It's such a pleasure to see so many listeners in the flesh. It's always rather terrifying when we do one of these things and we realize that there is a person at the other end of the podcast download stats that we see every day. So thank you so much for coming. It means so much to all of us. And we hope you find this evening interesting and you get something from it. Just a couple of words of framing for this evening before we start. As the ambassador said, it's nearly the second anniversary of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. It's nearly, as well, the 10th anniversary of the invasion of Donbass and the annexation of Crimea. A fact we shouldn't forget that Ukraine has been at war for almost a decade now. And when we think of that, when we think of tonight and what we're trying to do, it's a pleasure to meet you all and to see you all. But we wouldn't be here if we lived in a better world, in a more peaceful world. So it's something to bear in mind that we've certainly gone through this process, this reporting over the past two years. We've met people who've lost their loved ones, don't know when they're going to see their friends again. And we've met, we've interviewed people who have ended up losing their lives. I don't, you know, we should be sober and reflectful and supportive to our Ukrainian friends as we go through tonight. Just a few words of framing. So to start this off, I think we've got to start with the Ukraine aid bill currently caught up in, in Congress. Ambassador Bill Taylor, thank you so much for your time. We know from previous episodes and videoed episodes that some Ukrainian soldiers watch this and they want to know what we think and what Americans think. So what do you say to people on the front line right now if they're worried that this bill may not pass, if they're worried that American commitment to supporting Ukraine at some point in the future, in the near future or the far future may end? What's your message to them? My message is that the United States <clears throat> has supported Ukraine throughout this war, from the beginning, from 2014, but prior to that, and the United States will continue to support this war. The aid bill is now in the House of Representatives. The Senate of the United States passed it overwhelmingly, bipartisan overwhelmingly, 70 to 29. I will tell you, this is not a surprise, but in Washington, you don't get that kind of bipartisan support, that strong support for many things. And it was there for support to Ukraine. So there was that. Now, 
it is true. It goes to the House of Representatives where it will be more difficult. But there's a way to get it through there. When it gets to a vote, I am absolutely convinced, people smarter than I am on the House of Representatives tell me that it will pass as well, bipartisan. It will pass. The question is how to get it to a vote, and that's just a matter of the mechanics, uh, the procedures of getting it to a vote. It'll be difficult, but when that comes, I'm good. Now, I'm worried because it's taking too long. And I would say to those soldiers exactly what the ambassador said. They are there defending us, and we appreciate that, and we're going to re- reaffirm the, our commitment to them. Arisia, can I come to you? What's your reaction to that? What's the Ukrainian perspective on this? Well, I'd say the several emotions in Ukraine right now when this is a very difficult period of war, this particular year of 2024, because honestly, we didn't come enough prepared with, you know, mobilized resources, with uh, munitions, with the kit. So Ukraine feels wounded. It's been taking a lot of hits and Ukrainian cities are shelled daily and there's fierce fight going as we speak around Avdiivka and Kremlina. Ukraine is bitter to a degree for the West, especially for the United States, as it is embodiment of that freedom, the shield and the leader for the values of the West. But also Ukraine is very much determined. And, you know, I, I woke up today to the news that my hometown, Lviv, was bombarded, but any other town of, of Ukraine is bombarded the same matter. Uh, and uh, whenever you're thinking, how is your family today, people think, you know, my family is uh, 40 million of people in Ukraine. And I talked to my girlfriends, to my family, and, and, he said, what? and, and they say, what is going on in the world? Why the world is not waking up to this kind of pure evil, as they say? And they send me the message. They say, with every inch of land that Ukraine loses, Russia becomes less of a Ukraine's problem and more of a global problem. Western half, half-hearted action precipitates the war. So I'd say this is the kind of raw emotion today. And Ukrainians do hope that the West is mobilizing enough and that they will be able jointly to turn the tide of war. And it's not just, of course, Ukrainians watching anxiously to see what happens in Washington. Other NATO countries are watching as well. Dom Nichols, would you talk through a little bit your thinking on how other countries in the Western alliance are seeing this moment in the war? Well, I I think those countries in the NATO alliance that are further north and further east, so the Scandinavian Baltic, those kind of states, are much more clear-eyed than many of the many of the others. And they see the numbers and they see the politics, but they say, look, this they can actually see the threat and are are very open about that and are preparing their societies as well as their militaries for it. In terms of what happens with this bill if it doesn't get passed, I mean, stand fast to politics for a moment and it would send a huge message. We can talk about that if you like. But in terms of the numbers, there is a way... There is a way around it. So Estonia, the government of Estonia put out a very interesting Mm. paper just before Christmas, and I've talked about it on the pod a couple of times. And they crunched the numbers. They looked at at how this Russian army can be beaten, and it can be beaten. It has been beaten on the battlefield. It is surviving now. It's in a sort of zombie-like state just of of people who are increasingly less trained, less well-equipped, less well-led. They are just being shoved forward. This Russian army can be beaten, but they need stuff and kit to do it. So the Estonian government worked out, well, how, how would you do that? And they put a price tag on it. 
And they've said that if all the NATO members committed a quarter of 1% of GDP for four years, that would be 120 billion euro a year. And the important point is that it's committed for four years. So you can actually plan, you can talk to your defence industry, you can actually start building those plants to build more, to uh, develop more 155 mil ammunition shells, for example. So the commitment over time is just as important as the, as the commitment of money here and now. And importantly, they also crunched the numbers for whether, well, if the US support was, was not there under a new administration or for whatever reason, if the US money was not there, just the other members of NATO if they committed a quarter of 1% of GDP, that would still raise 60 billion euro a year, which is enough. Now, this is increasingly not a question of numbers. The combined GDP of NATO compared to Russia is about 25 times as much. I mean, it absolutely dwarfs the Russian economy and the Russian ability to manufacture arms and, uh, and equipment. So it's not a question of numbers and money. It's a question of political will. And I, I just wonder whether or not there's a political will there yet. I put that figure, quarter of 1% to various leaders that I've, that I've had the you know, privilege to meet. I put it to Defence Secretary Grant Shapps, who you know, <laughs> neatly avoided the question. But it is, a, it is a very real, it's not a totally bonkers off-the-wall figure that can just be dismissed out of hand. It is a very real, very credible figure that's had the, um, a lot of work put in behind it. And I just, I just think that we're getting to the point now where the other members of NATO need to start making some very serious commitments in terms of cash over time, rather than just saying the same things again and again and hoping that the US will, will come to the rescue. I mean, it doesn't have to only be with US support. It'd be incredibly difficult without it. Can I just jump in? Because I think we talked a lot about finances, but what US was providing throughout those two years of war is leadership. The free world needs leadership. And this Rammstein coalition of more than 50 countries that Pentagon was coordinating was something very important because the smaller countries with less capacity, I mean, nobody can compare with US military capabilities. US provided as much as combined European Union military has provided to Ukraine, including UK, right? That means that there has to be a vision of how this war must end and U.S. must stay on the case so that we can come back to uh, respect of sovereignty, come back to respect UN Charter, and I think it will be much, much more sustainable and we'll have a better chance at victory if U.S. remains committed. Francis, we haven't heard from you yet. Would you like to comment on any of that? I think we need to ask the question now, is, is Europe safe. And of course, as I've said on the podcast, I do find it quite curious that we've seen so much panic since the, regard, since the start of 2024, because this idea that Russia could defeat NATO is an absurdity. It can barely defeat one army in Ukraine, let alone 31 others. And it will actually, in a weird way, play into Russia's hands for us to see it as this great existential monolith that could steamroller its way through Europe and defeat numerous armies. The danger for Europe are these so-called grey zones, the zones that are not in NATO, where, like Moldova, like Ukraine was, where it is not clear where the line is drawn. And what worries me is that despite everything that we have seen in the last two years, there has not been a preemptive strategy adopted by NATO on the whole. Why are there not troops being stationed in Moldova? 
I would ask. Why is there not more being done to prevent a possible attack as opposed to responding when there is one? I know I've said this before as well, but I do not understand why, knowing what we know now, more serious conversations were not done to see maybe a few hundred, maybe a few thousand peacekeeping soldiers in Ukraine. That may well have been enough to prevent this horrific war. But there was fear, and there is still fear in the European context. And if I could just say one more thing on this. When we heard Tucker Carlson interviewing Putin last week, it was evident then that he wanted Putin to say that NATO was responsible for the war in Ukraine, that it was our fault for expanding closer to Russia's border, and that he had no choice but to respond. That's what Carlson wanted him to say, because that is the convenient narrative. But instead, anyone who unfortunately had to watch it, as we did for two hours, would have seen that it was a long rant, a lot of it involving history or pseudo-history from Putin, which clearly laid out his ambitions, not only for Ukraine, but for Europe more widely, specifically those grey zones. Now, I don't think he's a Hitler. I don't think he's a man who will willy-nilly go into NATO with his armies and because he thinks that God is on his side or something like that. But I do think that he will prod further in those grey zones. And it's our responsibility now to be proactive to prevent that. So being proactive, Ambassador, what might that look like from an American perspective? How can America be proactive in the next six months, considering as we think this war, unfortunately, may go on? So first of all, we need to pass this bill. We need to provide $61 billion from the United States together with the support that's coming from the rest of Europe, including, I will say, from the UK. The Brits have been in the lead on many of these things and have taken decisions on weapon systems, just for example, that have been well before the United States made those same decisions. So, so that's the first thing. Need to provide the weapons and the support that, that needs to happen. The second question is this one. How can we be sure that the Russians don't invade again? Whether it's Ukraine, Moldova, even, Na even NATO nations. I mean, listening to Putin in that interview... He did not stop at the current NATO border. I mean, there are people in the Baltic states uh, have to have listened very carefully about this. So the question how to ensure Ukraine's security in the face of a continuing threat is a real question. And I would say the answer, second part of your answer to your question is seriously consider how we get Ukraine into NATO. Um, and there, we're not going to do it as, Membership is not on the table now during active war, but there are steps that we could take right now that would begin that process. We ought to think about that. Can you talk a little bit about what those steps are? What yeah, might that look like? sure. This summer in, in July in Washington, D.C., where I just was, there's going to be a summit. It's the 75th anniversary, this year is the 75th anniversary of, of the founding of NATO. NATO heads of states, heads of state, all will be there. 31, maybe 32 if, if the Swedes join, which we hope they will. We're sure they will. We'll get together in Washington, D.C., and we'll have to decide what to offer Ukraine, what message to Ukraine, coming from that NATO summit. As I say, it's, that message is likely not going to be, you're invited to join NATO right now, unless the war's over by then. 
unless the Ukrainians have succeeded by then in pushing the Russians out. But if the war continues, then what the NATO allies could do would be to invite Ukraine to start the process of negotiating membership. Negotiating membership. European Union has started that exact process. They've said, you're going to be a member. And not only have they said, you're going to be a member, they've said, and we're ready to start the negotiation process. It's going to take time to join the EU. But that negotiation has begun. The same thing should happen for NATO. Francis? Just very quickly, but what would be good enough security guarantees that could be offered as part of that process that would prevent that is not Article 5? So you're exactly right. The question is, between the time that those negotiations start and they're completed, that is, Ukraine's a member, there's a period of vulnerability. The Finns and the Swedes noticed the same thing. And the United Kingdom and the United States gave some assurances to the Finns and the Swedes to cover that period of time, number one. Mm. Something similar could happen for Ukraine. Number two, out of Vilnius, out of this last summit, um, the NATO summit, there were commitments for assurances bilaterally from initially just the G7 countries. Bilateral Ukraine, United States. Bilateral Ukraine, UK. The UK has already completed that assurance, that agreement. The, The French are about to do that. The Americans are negotiating that. It turns out now that there are about 30 nations, not just the G7, but about 30 nations have signed up to do bilateral assurances. And so they're each suggesting what they can do, committing to what they can do to provide the ability, provide Ukraine the ability to defend themselves during this time before they become members. Arisa, can I come to you? Can we go back to something the ambassador said just then? How can we be sure the Russians don't invade again? What's, what are your thoughts on that? That is the question every Ukrainian man and woman is asking. How do I avoid my children going to another war with Russia? And that is why Ukrainians want to settle this war and end it in an unambiguous victory, because that is the best way to actually deter any future Russian invasion. But while that is being executed, I mean, immediately, I think, we have to understand that what Ukraine was provided for its counteroffensive in 2023 was suboptimal. Let's be honest. I mean, U.S. is spending less than one... I mean, U.S. is actually spending 0.19% of its military... of its GDP, sorry, for uh, arming Ukraine. It was spending 0.25% for Afghanistan. Ukraine is not fighting Taliban, right? I mean, think about the magnitude of the challenge on that battlefield. So, I mean, there are different calculations, but Ukraine needs roughly 1,000 attack arms and long-range missiles to really dislodge Russians from Crimea. Not 20. I don't know how many Ukraine has, roughly, but we are talking about these kind of numbers. So immediately Ukraine needs to be provided access to all the weapons, all the weapon systems, and training for those weapon systems to be able to defeat Russian military grouping, and it's large. It's more than 400,000 men right now, right? Those who are deployed on the occupied territories, on the front line, who are being rotated. Ukraine has done half of this already in the two years, so we know that Ukraine can defeat. So this is immediately. Now, in the midterm, what Ambassador was talking about, these bilateral security agreements, it is basically providing armaments to Ukraine. This is what it is. It's 
if you want at this point ukraine is not member of any alliance ukraine is neutral country you know according to ukraine's constitution that's why ukraine the first step is armed neutrality and then the next step is member of the nato alliance but also i think what is needed is what new commander of ukrainian armed forces was talking about is sustained supply, repair, trainings. You know, we were in the shock after the full-fledged uh, invasion. Then there was makeshift war. Then there was, let's take what we have in stock. Here today, we have to have a substantial strategy of victory, and that includes all these things. We're not going to be able to do it on the cheap, on the easy. This is the biggest war of our times, and NATO was set up to prepare for this kind of situation. There's no other situation NATO was really set up rather than to deter something like Soviet Union or Russia in its reincarnation, as we know Putin dreams to re-establish. Arisa, you mentioned that you said, um, you know, we're not fighting Taliban. Well, Dom, you did fight Taliban. What was, could you give us a sense from a soldier's perspective of what it's like to fight with sometimes kit that doesn't arrive, kit that doesn't work? How do you on the ground sort of navigate those, those issues? Well, I mean, there was a saying in the army, never forget that your gun, your personal weapon was provided by the lowest bidder. I mean, that's just the way the defence industrial base (laughs) works. So, yeah, I mean, there's never enough. It always breaks down before you expect it to. And the other side have always got much more than you. That's, That's the impression. So what, but what can really... That doesn't, I mean, Kit doesn't win wars. It's, it's the men and women that get up and go, and go and do it. And you only achieve that by giving them confidence. Now, equipment can offer confidence, or conversely, it can very quickly sap it when the stuff doesn't work. Look at the, um, the US experience in Vietnam with the M16s. They had some, uh, the earlier versions of the personal weapon were terrible, and they uh, lost, lost huge confidence in there and lost a lot of people until the weapon was, was improved. The same thing in Gulf One with the British, the SA 80 the spring wasn't strong enough to put up with all the sand that was going in the working part. So it really can affect morale. But then equally, just getting stuff doesn't answer the problem and can actually be detrimental. Because if you get showered with amazing kit and you don't know how to use it properly, you rapidly start to question it and question the people that support you, that have gifted it to you, and so on and so forth. So unless you have the training systems that can repair and replace the stuff that you've been given and you've actually got oh, sorry well the training the training systems so you can fight with them correctly and learn how to maintain them correctly and you've also got those long logistic tail such that you can get the stuff back in the fight when it's damaged and broken i mean if you don't have all that then you haven't got a capability you've just got a one-off off the shelf stuff that you can use and then it breaks and you can't use it again and that is almost worse than not having it in the first place so the provision of kit now i do accept the argument that for example, when the Brits supplied 13 or 14 Challenger 2 tanks, I think one's been knocked out now, that may have unlocked the door for the Abrams, and that then unlocked the door for Germany to say, OK, leopards, off, off you go. And that, that was the biggie. More, more countries have the leopard than any of those other individual tanks. So getting the leopards was the key one there. So maybe just having a small boutique squadron of Challenger 2 allowed that to happen. And you can say the same thing for long-range artillery and, and so on and so forth. But you've got to be careful how often you, you use that because you end up with all these fleets within fleets as we used to say and they're all very logistically heavy and they can't all work the spanner on that doesn't fit the tank trouser spud on that one over there and it's just you know it, it can very rapidly unravel so you've got to be very careful about 
showering with boutique kit. Sometimes less might be better if it's all of the same all of the same quality and can be rolled out and sustained over time. Ukraine has 17 artillery systems that it's used yeah. now. Variety. Yeah, exactly. yeah try yeah. fixing all those. But I, if I may, David, just Please. something that, that occurred to me there. You're talking about NATO and what happens and, and how, to, how to say to Russia, you know, to go no, no further. I'd be very interested to hear from Russia, from the domestic Ukrainian politics and Ambassador Bill about the sort of big high-end diplomacy, whether or not you think President Zelensky has backed himself into a corner by saying and repeatedly sticking to the line that the only possible outcome is all the ejection of all Russian forces from Ukraine. I wonder if that, maybe he's got to say that for political purposes, but it, it leaves no wiggle room. And there's this suggestion, unpalatable, most wars end with unpalatable negotiations, but the suggestion that if NATO membership was offered tomorrow, in return for Ukraine agreeing to cede the occupied territories, but then the, the NATO membership would confer Article 5 on the rest of Ukraine. Would that be acceptable? Now, that's one question. Whether President Zelensky has even put himself in a place where that question cannot be asked, I, I question, and I wonder if that's a good thing that he has done so. I'm not sure it is. Risa Rebel, he wants to come in first. I think it's the sentiment that is shared widely by Ukrainians. So Zelensky is, in a way, reflecting that wish. Uh, Ukrainians are not, at this point of war, willing to concede territory for peace, and even for, I don't think even for NATO, because they understand the nature of the beast. And I think this is where I'm always coming back to the origins of this war. Until Putin is in the Kremlin, and until, like uh, you said, Francis, he d denies the reality that Ukraine exists, he wants, he wants Kyiv because it's a Russian city, not because it's a Ukrainian city. He wants Odessa because it's a Russian city. Until that ideology rules Russia, I don't think there could be a territorial kind of concession solution. Unfortunately, I mean, unfortunately, because you would imagine rationing with somebody, but there's nobody on the other side where Putin says he wants to negotiate solely to distract Western decision-making on arming Ukraine to buy himself time. And there's no really, he wants to negotiate without negotiations. So it's very painful to understand that reality because you understand that there's only more fighting awaits Ukraine. But uh, I honestly don't see, and we had an expert roundtable recently in Chatham House, like under the rule, and nobody from people thought that you can negotiate with Putin. Perhaps if somebody else is in power, that man, that man is simply very dangerous and his ideology is dangerous. Over time, if Russians see the futility of this war and the cost is high enough, opportunities may open. And on your other question about has President Zelensky boxed himself into a corner by saying he has to take back, Ukraine wants to take back all of its territory. He has said, and his foreign minister has said, they've both said that they are going, they are going to take back all the territory and the internationally recognized borders are internationally recognized, but they haven't said that they have to do it right away. It has to be immediately. And they've recognized that some of that territory is going to be taken back militarily. And that's what they've been doing. And they, as the ambassador said, they've taken back a lot. But some of that may have to be 
over a longer period of time may have to be discussed. That is an indication that there is some flexibility, even though the goal is, which they will not give up for the reason that Rishi just said, that all that territory needs to come back. It's not just territory. It's Ukrainian citizens in that territory. So the Russians occupy 18% of, the, of Ukraine, and there are Ukrainian citizens there. We know what happens to Ukrainian citizens when they live in Russian-occupied territory. It's horrible. The Ukrainians are not ready to give that up. It's also principle as well. I mean, we should want Ukraine to take back all of its territory. The longer that Russia can behave in the way that it has, it is changing the post-war or post-millennium moral architecture that we inhabit. Already, I think there has been a shift in attitudes towards our world, our geopolitics as a result of this war. I've seen a huge reinjection of cynicism that wasn't present in the 90s and early noughties, and it's got seriously bad. That's before you even bring in the issues you've just talked about, like kidnapped children. Why is that not a front page story, you know? But we are living in that world now, and the longer we live in it, the more likely we are to inhabit that longer term. And the real danger is, of course, that Iran is watching, China is watching. These countries are testing the West as well here. They're implicated and they're involved in their own ways. But just since we're speaking on this question of how Ukraine wins and weaponry specifically, one of the great unanswered questions of this war for me is what is Europe capable of in the short term if, God forbid, America withdraws Mm. under a Trump presidency? I've had several answers since I put that open question out on the podcast from very informed people. They give different perspectives. The general consensus is that in the short term, if America were to withdraw, say November, December this year, that there would be a very quick and swift impact on the Ukrainian armed forces. Thinking until 2026, you might be in a position where some of those attackers type technology and the advanced weapons that have proved critical for Ukraine's advances so far are in European hands because we would have been able to develop them. But that's the timescale we are now talking about. And that is the vital role that America plays. It is the tragedy, unfortunately, of Europe's complacency over a very sustained period of time that we are where we are. And it has only been now that Europe has really begun to wake up to the threat. It's extremely striking to me how much panic there has been since 2024 began. It was noteworthy. But we, of course, and you from listening, will know that really we should have been talking about this for six months to a year because it was entirely possible that we would end up in this geopolitical reality. But that is pretty stark, I think, that we are thinking now in the very long term for Ukraine. And it may be we've missed the opportunity for a short victory. And the tragedy of that is, of course, that many, many more people will lose their lives until we see an absolute victory for Ukraine. So much of what we've been talking about tonight is really about international negotiation, diplomacy. So, Ambassador, could you tell us a little bit about what that's like? What was it? What kind of strategies did you employ? How did you do diplomacy in Ukraine in in your terms there? So what the U.S. role in Ukraine has been... Uh, would be to provide support. So we were able, so I was there twice. I was there in 2006, 2009, before any invasion. And that was a different time. It was a different Ukraine at the time. We can talk about that. 
I went back in 2019, again, before the big invasion, but the difference was stark. By this time, Ukraine had made its decision. It's Europe. When I was there the first time, there was a debate between Europe and, and Russia. No longer. And 2014 changed that. Of course, 2022 made it absolutely clear. But that debate of where Ukraine would end up had been answered in 2019. And so the role that we played was to how to support that, how to support Ukraine's move into Europe. We had started that earlier when it was still a debate, but in 2019, it was how can we facilitate, how can we support the Ukrainians as they move in? And it's the EU and it's NATO. It's those European institutions that we were moving to support. You've talked about you know, how Ukraine has changed so much over the past 10, 20 years. Away from the politics, what did you notice in terms of society and culture when you were in Kiev between your two terms? What was different <clears throat> when you came back? So in, in, in 2006, 2009, this is hard to remember. You will help me with this. This is difficult to remember. It's painful to remember. But the second largest political party in Ukraine was unabashedly... Un they were not embarrassed that they supported a, a Russia strategy, a pro-Russia strategy. Now, we, saying that today, it's, it's hard, again, painful to remember. But there was a real debate. Ukraine is a democracy, let's be clear. The, Ukraine has shifted, you know, they have arguments, they have debates, they have political um, and And that went on then. There's no doubt. Talk to anybody. Today... That again, that debate has been answered. Today, there is n virtually no one that suggests, virtually no one in Ukraine that suggests that Russia is a model, that Russia is the direction that Ukraine. It's clearly now Europe. And that's a big difference between I was there. Erisi, what would you like to add to that? Well, I think, first of all, Putin clearly overstretched when he attacked Ukraine head on, right? Because he was doing his you know, proxy group, little green man. He was a coward, right? And we didn't exploit that opportunity. But he was doing it for eight years. There were 200 rounds of negotiations around Normandy format in Minsk. This is something we forget when Ukraine is offered now a possibility, right? Or uh, even like hypothetical discussion of negotiation. We have to remember Ukrainians have been through this. This is, that's why it's so rejected. But Speaking of, of, of that, I mean, you know, I left Ukraine uh, to the UK 12 years ago, right? I mean, I think what happened in Ukraine is that the new generation, the new politics, the new technologies, the new economy, the culture that was waking up from this post-colonial stupor, so to speak. I remember going in bookshops, seeing so many translations of nonfiction like I've never seen. I've seen Ukraine being plugged in into this intellectual, you know, Western world where Ukrainians were like hungry for this. And you see the, the aesthetics, the design. You, you, of course, it's very much rooted in Ukrainian old tradition and interpretation of this. And this is what Putin hates because this was the proof that he's wrong. And that's why he had to invade because he saw where Ukraine is going, like Ambassador said. It was no question where Ukraine belongs, why it always belongs through its history. So what is happening right now is as Ukraine is a very old nation, very old nation. I'm not going to go into history like Putin, <laughs> but it's a young state. It's a young state because it has been you know, uh, in, on the imperial, uh, you know, colonial policy of Russia, 
parts of it for a very long time, and it's almost like needs to grow the muscle of the statehood. And this is what Ukraine was doing rapidly since 2014, and now with the war, actually, it's even expedited. You see the digital governance, you see social services that you can access through the smartphone, you see healthcare that has been reformed, you see banking sector that is working you know, right now you can go in a little market and buy uh, parsley leaves paying a lady with a touch phone. You know, it's unbelievable. You have railways that are working. And all of this, all of this actually means that the silver lining of this horrible war is that Ukraine will come up institutionally much stronger because this is at times of war institutions also strengthen the armed forces, the economy, everything. But also, you know, we must remember that there will be a huge impact on Ukrainian population with mental health crisis, with, um, you know, uh, displacements, with healing the trauma, with rebuilding the cities. A lot of people will simply be afraid to come back to that horror they lived through, even if there is a fancy, nice building that British government will pay to rebuild. We have to understand that it will take time to, to heal and I, my hope, again, comes from Ukraine being part of European family, where it's much easier to do it when you have common market, when you have common space, when you have freedom of movement, respect for human rights. I think that will give Ukraine an amazing boost after the, the tragedy. You mentioned history then, and of course this is a historic moment. But how, can we talk a little bit about how history has been weaponized in the past two years. Francis, I know this is something you wanted to speak about a little bit. Sure. I mean, I think, I mean, history is everywhere, right? It's the water we drink, it's the air we breathe, it's the word we speak. You can't escape that. But it has been fascinating seeing the restoration of history, I think. And I don't just mean in the Fukuyamian sense since the end of history, which was clearly wrong. Although actually, I think we were also wrong in the way we interpreted that book. If you actually read that book, it's a very different text than is often commonly understood. But regardless, history's back. The conventional forces of power and geopolitics have returned. And it's been really interesting in this conflict seeing the degree to which that history implicates and shapes how every country views the war in Ukraine. America, of course, seeing Ukraine as a standard bearer of a kind of freedom and liberty. Britain, too, has been, I think, very, from a product of its history, particularly the Second World War, has seen Ukraine as a country that is fighting for its life, and we respect that, and we're also lucky enough to be in a geopolitical position where we can do more without risk. But then you see history play a very prominent role with the Germans and the French, for example, who are more traditionally nervous of pro prodding the Russian bear. Both, we forget this, both have been occupied by the Russians. The French were occupied by the Russians in the Napoleonic Wars. So there is a collective memory in play here. But when we, since you bring up history, David, I think it's also relevant to think about the tides of history and how history moves in the long term. And it inches forward, inches forward. And sometimes you don't realize that the turning point was six months to a year ago. And I do think that a page has been turned in Ukraine and in Europe's future and its history because it is inconceivable to me now, for all of the processes that have just been eloquently described, that Ukraine would even capable, be capable of being occupied any longer by the Russians. They have, it has changed them as a people, experiencing these horrific atrocities under their former brothers. So history, regardless 
of what happens in the years ahead, and I'm talking about in the most pessimistic scenarios, it would be inconceivable to me for there to be a return for Ukraine to a oppressed future. And I mean that even in the very worst situations. But of course, we don't want to end up in that scenario because of all the reasons that I've just been talking about with regard to China and other countries that are far more bellicose as a response to this war. They see the West as vulnerable, weak, divided. And that's where, of course, there are really long-term risks as well. And what happens in this conflict, there's too much negativity. There's too much sense of inevitability that, oh, well, history will show that Russia will mobilize this number of, number of troops. It's done. We've lost. Nothing is certain in history. And frankly, what happens in Ukraine, it's still in our hands. So, David, I agree with that. And I think this is a particularly interesting point, crucial point, important point, that it, right now, and maybe I'm focused on my country, but I think what happens in the Congress of the United States over the next couple of weeks will determine a lot of history that we will look back on. It could go, and I am sure it should go, toward a recommitment of U.S. forces, U.S. resources, U.S. Uh, will to support Ukraine. And that could happen. I think that will happen. If it doesn't, we'll look back and say, that was the point where history changed, where Russia was able to do this, where China noticed, where Iran, other nations noticed, that we'll look back on this next couple of weeks, what we're living in right now as a historic turning point. In the same I hope way for that the Syria better. and yeah. uh, Crimea should have been. Yeah. I think what's interesting is that what the ambassador says is that basically the moment of time is now where there is a risk that we may give up before losing the war. And the, the implications of that, I don't think we need to repeat. I mean, people understand the gravity of the moment. But I think also what drives Ukrainian resistance and this amazing bravery that fascinates the world is history, actually. Not the falsified history, but the true facts of Ukrainians being killed at mass with genocidal-type famines, repressions, and for the, this yearning for justice that is very much, right now, Ukrainians feel they have the best moment in history. And why? It's because the world stands by Ukraine. Ukraine has never in its point of history had such a strong coalition of backers, 50 countries around the world. This has never happened. You know, it was always somewhere in the Russian backyard. And honestly, I think now we are finishing the unfinished Second World War, where one tyranny was condemned and put on trial, and another one was given half of Europe. At that time, for various reasons, we were tired of the war. It was Cold War, as it was called, but now Putin reheated it. And this is unfortunate that our generation has to deal with it. But you see, this is what happens with the unpunished evil that only get stronger, and then we opened a lot of doors to that regime to harbor the money, to get access to weapons, you know, to spend their good lives in the West, and this is what they've used it for. You mentioned that the Second World War and the Cold War. Ambassador, I mean, do you think, diplomatically speaking, we're in a new Cold War, or even a continuation of something we should have recognized a long time ago? We should recognize that Russia, as long as President Putin or someone like him is in the Kremlin, that 
the West, the United States, NATO, the West, is going to have to contain them, contain the Russians. We are going to have to recognize that this is a, a, a leader who wants empire. And it, as long as the leader in the Kremlin wants an empire, then that will be a constant source of conflict, constant source of conflict. So we have to contain that. We have to deter that. We have to contain that. When you look back at your time in Kiev, um, what are the memories you go to when you, when you remember the city as you worked in it? What are your best memories of, of working in, in the capital of Ukraine? Too many to, to, to remember. There were, there were brilliant times, mostly having to do with Ukrainian people, mostly being impressed. In Odessa, I had not been in Ukraine. This was in 2006. I wouldn't have been there for like two or three months. In Odessa, on the steps, someone came up to me and, and said, aren't you the new ambassador to, from the United States? I said, oh. I was shocked. But the Ukrainian people um, and their appreciation for support, the Ukrainian people and their determination, back in 2006, 2009, surely. But in, in 2019, when I was there, and then I've been back many times since then, six times since the big war, the determination of Ukrainian people, that's the highlight. That's the highlight of, of all of my time there. Before we go to some questions from the audience, then, let's, I'll ask each of you just to give your final thoughts for this section of the live podcast. Maybe summing up what we've talked about or a particular message you want to get across. So, Francis, can I come to you first? As I say, history, in some ways, I think, is already written about the future of Ukraine. And I say that as an optimist as opposed to a pessimist. And yet, as we've talked about today, I see too much hand-wringing and not enough responsibility being adopted by those who should know better. And it should be, I think, a huge concern that there is that crisis of leadership at present. And there are a lot of fingers that can be pointed about that. But we should not be downhearted. If we look at what Ukraine has achieved in the last two years, compared to what we expected, it is extraordinary. It is the most inspiring and incredible story that I've certainly seen in my lifetime, indeed, possibly even read about. We were in a situation when world leaders were calling Zelensky up and saying, which one of our countries do you want to come in and set up an exiled government? We forget that. I remember when I was reading reports in the first days of the war that were saying it'll be over within a week, that the Russians will be in Kyiv. Remember that. Hold on to that. And I think we shouldn't be as pessimistic as we often are. Thank you, Francis. Dom Nichols. Yeah, I, I might run the risk here of repeat, repeating something we've just been talking about, but I, I was on operations on 9-11 alongside US, US colleagues, and that was such a visceral moment. It was so, uh, so visual, for starters, and it was such a shocking day and the, you know, the, the immediate period after that we just thought, it was just so extraordinary, extraordinarily terrible, horrific. And the force that was Al-Qaeda and then Islamic State that sort of came after, there was a global reaction to that. The first and only time that NATO Article 5 has been invoked. And the first person, we are told, that rang up President Bush to offer sympathy, support, was Vladimir Putin. He, he obviously 
playing a long game, I think, but we forget that. It was an extraordinary time, and it was a, it was a moment in history, just this idea that, the, that this, was, this could still happen, this, the, the people, the ideology behind that could still happen. And I think we are there again now. I was, um, I was not expecting, although you, put it, you made a very good case, Ambassador, to say it's the next two weeks, but the page is turning again. And I just wonder if this is the moment in history where we look back and say... What, are we willing to accept this kind of behaviour in the 21st century, so long after the Second World War, the norms of behaviour that were fought for then or that grew out of the ashes of the Second World War that have shaped the world we're in now, being challenged today as never before? And if we say, well, yes, there are some cracks in it and we will allow to equal rights and you can roll over borders if you so wish and we'll say some warm words, but actually won't do much about it. I think this is a very, very dangerous moment, and I think we are. there's no guarantee that we're going to pass this test. I'm looking for who the, who the, who the big leaders in Europe are right now. There's not many around. Kaya Kallas in Estonia, yeah. perhaps. But I'm, I'm looking around to see who the, where the big diplomats and the big leaders really are. You know, I think this is a very, very pivotal moment in the next two weeks quite shocking to put that kind of time frame on it but I, I totally accept the argument but I think if we get this wrong then this is a moment a bit like 9-11 and we should be very very cautious and very determined to see it through. So Dom while you were on a mission I was on the street on September 11 and um, that darkness actually covered me and and that's the moment you know I probably understood that the impossible is possible everything is possible it was amazing, I would say, fortitude of American leadership, actually, to say back to normal, we will be, we, they had a message for American people that we will get back life in place. We will protect you, we will protect America, we will protect values. And, and, and I think this is what we need right now. We need that reassurance that while Ukraine is holding these defense lines in the east, it's a bit like the dam of Kahovka, if you recall, when Russians detonated. This is Ukrainian front line. If Ukraine collapses, that thing is going to flood the rest of Europe. So I think... It wouldn't be an exaggeration to say how important this is right now. And, and I think when you were asking who is that European great leader and diplomat, actually, I read the speech of Josep Borrell in the Ukrainian parliament, and it's impressive. And here's something I want to leave you with. He said, we need the paradigm shift from supporting Ukraine from as long as it takes to doing whatever it takes for Ukraine to win. This is new thing. Nobody was saying that. I mean, UK was the first one to say at that time, Boris Johnson, who said Ukraine must win and I believe you will win. Now we're seeing that message coming from the combined European Union leadership. I think David Cameron and uh, Rushi Sunak in the Ukrainian parliament said exactly the same. So now we have to put the words where the mouse is. We need resources fast before it's too late and too costly. Thank you very much, Ambassador. I'll leave you with the final words. Just two things which kind of pulls together what, what others have said. We can pass this bill. The United States can provide the support that is needed. The, it, there's a way to do that. There's a way to do it in the House. The Senate has already acted, so there, it can be done. It may take longer. It may take the two weeks. It may take four weeks, but it can be done. And so that's number one. And then number two, following from that, Ukraine can win. Ukraine can win. In, again, 
Doesn't have to be immediate. It will be dramatic. It'll be a big push. Maybe not this year, following year. Ukraine can win if it gets that support from us and if it gets that support from Europe. The kinds of support that we are seeing from both Europeans and what can come from the United States will allow Ukraine to win. Well, thank you, Francis, Bill, Dom, and Arisia for all of your thoughts. That was really fascinating. Let's go now to some questions from the audience. So I think you can actually submit questions. There's a QR code somewhere near people's seats, so do keep them coming in. We've got a few here. So let's start, well, let's, let's start in diplomacy. Thank you very much, Sue, for this question. Uh, Sue asks, how do you negotiate around Russia being a member of the UN Security Council having a veto? Should the Security Council be reorganized? Who would like to take that? The diplomats. I think the diplomats. <laughs> <laughs> the UN has failed. The UN was set up to, to prevent the kind of war that we are seeing in Ukraine today. The UN Security Council has failed. Some friends of mine have pointed out that there's a lot of good things that the United Nations does. The United Nations has humanitarian, it has political, it has environmental, it has avi- There's a lot that the UN does, but it has failed in its basic mission of preventing or then reacting to someone violating the precepts of sovereignty and, and independence. That's a big question. Would anybody else like to come in on that? What is striking is that Ukraine, that is being a victim of unprovoked aggression, repeatedly brings back UN charter. That means that there is something at the UN as a you know, multilateral global organization that Ukraine believes is worth fighting for, right? I mean, uh, I think there's a bigger question of UN reform and actually legitimacy of Russia, Russian Federation being on the seat of the Security Council because there was never a legal vote by the UN General Assembly to allow that to happen after Soviet Union collapsed. There were other founding members as Ukraine and Belarus of the United Nations in 1945. So there's a question of reshaping the global governance, but I think this will happen after this war is over. We don't know the scale of the global disturbance that will be needed for this new um, governance to emerge, but the existing structures are not working. Russia, I believe, violated 400 international treaties and agreements by invading Ukraine. See, it's not just the problem of UN, but others. And unfortunately, now there's a coalition of the willing that is trying to patch back some of the rules of the global order. I was in the UN in September after trip to Washington. And I heard Zelensky speak, I heard President Biden speak, and I heard many other world leaders speak. And it was very striking there that there is an appetite for reform. Amongst both, from both sides, West, Global South, whichever, however you want to articulate it, there is an appetite for reform. And I think there is justification for reform as well. It is quite crazy that the UN Security Council has countries on it permanently, when, of course, history doesn't operate with certain powers almost per, always permanently being great powers. So they will inevitably change. I do agree that it will have to happen after this war. But there is also another thing that is in play here, which is the degree to which the UN itself has become a tool used by dictators like Putin as a weapon to harm the West, to harm Ukraine. It was very striking, I think, seeing how many countries were suddenly back on Russia's side 
following the Israel-Gaza conflict that has, when it sparked on October 7th, re-sparked. The very, very quickly, Russia's allies, diplomatic friends, use the UN as a tool in which to critique the West and win back those who had felt obliged not to engage with Russia because of their actions in Ukraine. So I think it's just worth remembering that, that yes, the UN does a lot of good. And you can say that by the very nature of existing and pushing forward through power, democratic processes, that it is an asset to the West. At the same time, it can be used for harm. Well, thank you very much for your question. Let's move on to another one. We, we put the previous question to the diplomat, so let's put this military question to the former soldier. Ian asks, what will it take for Ukraine to now regain the battlefield initiative? Are F-16s really going to be a game-changing capability? No. No, they're not. In and of themselves, they need to be part of the whole, the orchestra, as I, as I talk about it. You can't just have one part of the military working, working in isolation. It all needs to work together for the reasons I said earlier on it's there's no point in having all this fantastic stuff if you can't keep it going day after day what do they need to do well they need mass and at the moment as General Sir Patrick Sanders the head of the British Army said a few weeks ago he said don't forget that normally through history professional armies start wars mm -hmm. civilian armies finish them <coughs> that's where Ukraine is at the moment and Russia to a very large extent so they need mass they need time to train their personnel across all the disciplines, the Army, Navy, Air Force, all, all the rest of it. And they need to then work at scale. So it's one thing to have a unit of, say, 400 people that's an engineer unit working with 400 people in a tank unit, and then you incorporate some drones and air power and helicopters and what have you. You need it bigger than that, and you need it all to work together, and you need to have it practiced and then put it into the fight. So that and a good takes, conductor. And a good conductor, yeah, absolutely. Leadership is absolutely critical. One of my former bosses, General Mark Carlton-Smith, who went on to lead the head of the army, he said, get the command and control right, as in who can order who to do what, basically. Get that right, first of all, before you do anything, and then you're off to a good start. If you get it wrong, or if you overlook that bit, or we'll come back to that later, you are, you are already you're fighting with one arm behind your back. So, yes, you need good leaders, and you need a, a very large military that is very well practiced. And all of that takes time and money and real estate in you know, Europe or wherever to practice this. I mean, look at the preparations for D-Day before, before it actually happened. So it's going to take a huge amount of time, a huge amount of commitment and, and a lot of money. I don't think much else is going to happen for this year. It's going to be next year at the earliest, I think, before there's any major, major changes. And e even then they thought D-Day might fail. Mm. It's worth remembering that. That leads very nicely onto our next question. This is from Roger, who's watching online. So thank you very much, Roger, for sending this in. Obviously, I think this might be one for you. What effect has the change in military leadership had on the internal politics of Ukraine? I wouldn't say it had any effect on internal politics. First of all, as Ambassador said, Ukraine is democracy, so a lot of things are being discussed openly. There's independent media, even at times of war. There's no censorship, right? The internet, it's all free. So President Zelensky, as a civilian leader of the army, has a full right in a democracy to change the leadership. There were some doubts why this General Zaluzhny, who was such a successful and well-respected general, 
what are the military expediency? What is the military logic of such a decision? So um, it caused a lot of anxiety. But I think we are seeing quite large reshuffle in the command of Ukrainian armed forces. Around 10 senior people, five of them who have very senior combat experience, and then five younger ones who have been show, proven quite successful at this moment. And I think Ukrainians are standing behind the strategy. It seems like President Zelensky says at this point with this new leadership of General Sirsky, the tactic should be to prepare for strategic defense, to sort out logistics, to make sure there is rotation on the battlefield. That's why Ukraine is, has passed the first reading of the mobilization bill. And also prepare for technological revolution of the army that has started with drones and we see quite impressive successes in the Black Sea. So I think Ukrainians overwhelmingly, they feel gratitude for the former general who they think saved Kyiv and saved the nationhood as such because of the capital. He was awarded the golden star and the hero of Ukraine. There was a handshake. He is not going into politics anytime soon. He will, be, he will keep fighting the war and the new team will have to prove what they're able to achieve because right now the stages where a lot of this nitty-gritty work of um, command, control, reform, training of the armed forces has to happen if Ukraine is seriously determined to achieve these war objectives. We've got a question. Oh, sorry, Tom, there. Just very quickly, I, I think we've not, seen, we've not seen the last of General Zeluzny yet for a long time. I reckon Here's Dom's top tip, get a tenor. I reckon he's going to be in charge of this, go and build the army. So General Sersky is now in, in, in charge. He's going to fight the fight in Ukraine and in Russia and elsewhere. And I reckon General Zeluzny is being told, you go and build the next army. We have a question from an anonymous person in the room, so thank you so much. What can the West do to counter Russian false information and speak directly to the Russian people? That's a good question. Well, I, I'll happily... I mean, this is a great question. And I remember actually in the early days of the war, it was the big question. Everybody was talking about how do we persuade the Russians to see the insanity of what's going on? I think there was probably a lot of naivety in that. But one of the things that struck me the most is the degree to which we haven't really tried in a pro profound sense to win round Russian hearts and minds in the way that perhaps we did in the Cold War. In the Cold War, there were numerous initiatives to try and keep people behind the Iron Curtain informed as to what was going on. Very brave individuals smuggling books, smuggling information, Radio Liberty, of course. There hasn't really been that concerted effort. And I think in part, that's because we're out of practice. We assumed, again, naively, that the internet was itself a liberator. But what has happened instead is it has become an oppressor in many countries, China and Russia perhaps most notably. And as a response to that, we see a world where you can live in an entirely different world. And in a weird way, we all do. When the internet started, there was only one platform for this, one platform for that. Now, when I switch on my phone, if I put Twitter on, or X as we're obliged to call it these days, <laughs> I can inhabit an entirely different reality, depending on who I follow, than you or you. And if you imagine that on a nationwide scale, but also on an individual scale, we're living in a very fragmented age. And that's very, very difficult to pierce in a collective way. So we're out of practice, but also, as I often say, the medium itself is the message. 
The real challenge here is the degree to which social media and other platforms that we use so freely, thinking it's a great tool of freedom, is actually something far more harmful. Even by being on it, we are facilitating a kind of dialogue which is unnuanced and harmful to our politics. But thank you, everyone, who's been following on Twitter this evening. <laughs> Let's move on to a different question. Then this is from Stuart in the room. So thank you, Stuart. How worried should Ukraine be at the prospect of a Trump presidency? Would you like to say that, Ambassador? So no one knows. No one knows. We have a lot of time between now and the election. We don't know who will win the election. We're not really sure what uh, Mr. Trump would do. He's said some different things about, uh, about this issue. What we do know is Ukrainians are preparing themselves for the next several years. <clears throat> and they're right to do that. Europeans are preparing themselves for the next several years. People recognize that this is a possibility. He's, Mr. Trump is very likely to be the candidate on the Republican side. And he has said something contradictory things. So I think we just don't know. We should prepare. Ukrainians should prepare, Europeans should prepare, Americans should be prepared. Arisa, what do Ukrainians think? I think President Zelensky, first of all, invited Trump to come to Ukraine. That's to see for himself in the first instance what is going on in the country, right? Because I think, uh, you know, he may be living a little bit in the Washington bubble at this point. I think also that for... Let's remember that Trump was the first to give Ukraine javelins. So, like you say, Ambassador, he may turn around and give Ukraine everything it needs to win this war. But I think the danger where Ukrainians see is that Trump may destabilize the solidarity and unity of the of NATO alliance, of um, united collective West, that is actually the biggest fear of Putin and is actually the target of Putin's war. Let's remember, this is this unity of combined GDP that has 10 times more than, than Russian GDP. This gives Ukraine a winning chance and this gives the global order a winning chance, and he's after that. So that's why he may try to destabilize Trump and, and temper it, that almost tempt him into some kind of radical behavior that will threaten the alliance. And once that threat, in some case, starts materializing, he may make a next move. This is where the danger lies of this unpredictability. And I think Putin is obsessed, thinking that, okay, it's America who destroyed my Soviet Union, so I'm not going to destroy all the unions. And, and this Mr. Evil is after that. He is after destroying European Union and NATO. I believe it. America has always lurched between interventionism and isolationism from its very earliest presidents. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson articulate both of those views. and It's great to see their paintings in here. So in a more positive sense, I think one could say that if Trump was elected, yes, it would be a huge shock and it would be dangerous. I'm not undermining that. But if it encouraged Europe and the West to put its boots on in a way that it should have for many, many years... Than, and it's so interesting today seeing Jens Stoltenberg saying that now 18 other NATO countries are going to hit the 2%. Maybe there will be an unintended consequence that will see more leaders wake up to the dangers. We've had a question which is quoting back at us some of our own reporting. So thank you for reading The Telegraph today. <laughs> from John, who says, from The Telegraph, quote, Moscow laying groundwork for Moldova invasion won <laughs> experts. His question is, will NATO intervene if Russia attacks Moldova? Can I nuance that question slightly and say, what could NATO do if 
Russia did attack Moldova. Can I just quickly, because I don't want now people rushing out of Moldova and, you know, and businesses and everything. First of all, until Ukraine stands, and as long as Odessa stands, Putin has no chance of a direct military attack on Moldova. This is just impossible. Mm. That's why he was heading into this landing operation in Odessa that failed. Now Russian ships have to go back to Novorossiysk, and they've lost one two days ago, right, after the drone attack. So Let's not create panic. Ukraine must stand and Moldova will stand. But there will be hybrid ways to destabilize Moldova through elections. I mean, we've done a bit of research on Moldova and people inside who understand saying Moldova is becoming more resilient, actually. The current government is addressing the issue head on. They are trying to clean up dirty Russian money that they were pulling through uh, in local elections to bring in pro-European, pro-Russian parties, as they are called. They are aware of it. I think Moldova is preparing to repel this kind of Russian strategy. But maybe Francis has some other ideas, because he mentioned Moldova. Well, Moldova is one of those grey zones I talked about earlier on, where I think there does need to be a much more proactive effort from within the West to show that those territories that are not in NATO are defended to prevent another front in the Ukraine war. Moldova, obviously, for all the reasons you've talked about, is not a new front because they'd have to go through Ukraine. But nonetheless, it's a danger because there are other ways in which one can stir unrest. And we've seen Putin do that by trying to spark protests, destabilize revolution, etc. The other place we're not following enough, in my view, is the Balkans. Huge disinformation campaigns happening there around Serbia, Kosovo. A lot of that is, and I talk to experts on this, is being orchestrated by Moscow. Just look at what has happened in the last two years. Moscow has been prodding and probing in a lot of different places using a lot of different tools. This isn't conspiratorial thinking. You can just read it. It's happening. And the Balkans, the Middle East, these are all places, Africa too, these are all places that are in danger the longer this war goes on. And that's another reason why it is in our interests for it to end sooner rather than later. We're starting to get to the end of our time. So I think this question, i quite like to hear both the ambassador and Arisia's um, replies to this. This is from Alan, who's watching online. So thank you very much, Alan, for your question. He says, what can an ordinary middle-aged person in the UK like me do to support Ukraine, feeling so helpless and frustrated? I'd say get inspiration from Ukraine, turn your despair and anger into action. And, you know, I think we should push government rep uh, elected representatives to actually spend more on defense here in the UK so that we are able to help Ukraine in the end. I think that there has been an amazing openness in the UK to host Ukrainian families. Now, a lot of those families who are staying with other families need housing. So perhaps supporting some of the charities that are supporting Ukrainian women with children, and this is mainly women with children because Ukrainian men cannot legally leave the country, it would be of great importance, helping them finding jobs, helping them with English. But I think mainly it's putting pressure through asking questions like that, what, are, what my government can do more, because this is in our own national interest. And I think there has been an amazing voluntary and charitable effort, and that must continue because people rely on these safety nets. <clears throat> I would totally agree, Rissa. I would say that individuals in the UK, individuals in the United States can make their voices heard, listen to the debate, make their voices clear to their elected representatives 
Again, this is a big decision that's going to be made in, in the United States. People in Congress listen to voters. They listen to American citizens. People in the UK listen to voters. So this is important for them to make their voices heard. There are things individuals can do as well. Arisa just described them. There are a lot of ways to support Ukrainians. The recognition that they are, the Ukrainians are fighting for us it should motivate us all to support them. Final. Oh, and please, and, Tom, and if I may, Alan, you are right to be frustrated. You are right to be angry, maybe a little bit nervous. Don't be scared. He wants us to be scared. Don't be scared. Don't allow yourself to be terrorized. But you are not helpless, Alan. We are not helpless. You are already doing something positive. You are taking an interest. You are educating yourself. You are reading and learning and listening, even to one of Francis's interminable <laughs> final thoughts. So you are... That's a bit you are, rich. <laughs> you are... <coughs> so, Alan, you are... You're in it. You are taking an active interest. You can do more. Yeah, of course. We can do the, you can support charities. You can get involved letters, emails to, to politicians and what have you. But at the very least, you can read and educate ourselves and make sure that we're not having the wool pulled over our eyes. And Alan, I think you're already doing that. So you're not helpless. We got so close to the end being completely professional, Tom. You absolutely ruined it. <laughs> <laughs> One final question then, I think, from an anonymous um, questioner in the audience. This, I like this question because it throws forward and looks at Russia. post Prigozhin, is Putin completely secure? No. No. I don't think so. I think the West has been far too accepting of Russian narratives that autocracies look strong, but they're often weak. It's an eggshell. And the Prigozhin mutiny should have shown just how fragile all autocracies really are. But instead, the success of Prigozhin seems to have made everybody believe, well, that's that then. There is still a lot of elite anger there is still a lot of popular anger in Russia. And whenever you've got the sword of Damocles hanging over your head, things can happen very quickly if you're in that vulnerable situation as a dictator. Putin knows this. Why is he otherwise oppressing even figures he isn't really endangered from? It's because he doesn't want to even spark anything. So it's worth remembering that. And I know I've made this point many times on the podcast, but I do think that we tend to forget that if Putin were succeeded tomorrow... That person, even if they were ideologically more hardcore, would not be in a position to want, be wanting to extend the war in Ukraine. Their priority would be to secure themselves at home, just as the Bolsheviks did. They would, I believe, withdraw from Ukraine and would be spending years building their strength within the Russian sphere. So I don't think we should be fearing it. And I think actually we should be doing more to proactively heading towards that direction. So Putin is worried there's been this relatively unknown candidate, a potential candidate in the upcoming Russian election, such as it is, that has generated an incredible amount of support. Russians are lining up to give their signature at some risk to themselves. Sign the ballot papers, sign the indications that they will support this man if he were to run. Now, President Putin has recognized this problem and is moving to eliminate him from the... But he has a problem. President Putin has a problem. We are... I'm so sorry, Don. We are at the end of our time. So I'll just ask the Ambassador and Arisia to give us your very final thoughts. And what would you like to leave us with tonight? Arisia, why don't you go first? Well, 
Overall, I think I just want to say that the time is now for action because I think the cost of that action will be cheaper than the cost of inaction. And I think we have to understand that Ukraine is really gritting the teeth at this moment of this podcast, uh, buying in time for Western defense production for political strategy, to really understand that you, you should not be afraid of Russia. Ukraine has overcome that fear of Russia that enables its success on the battlefield that we have seen. So now the last bit of this is for the West to overcome this fear because Putin is like water. He will go where there is an opportunity. If you close the opportunity, the puddle will dry out. And it's extremely brittle system that looks like it's stable on the outside. And we should understand that it's a colossus on clay feet. This is what Ukrainians understand. And this is why they are ready to pick up the fight. And for the very final words, Ambassador Will. Ukraine can win. They need our support. They need our support, and that support can come. Now is the time. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Dom and Francis, as always. Thank you all for being such a wonderful audience. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis, and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just one pound at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, a world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.